Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. Today, I'm honored to be uh, speaking with Dr. Una Michaelvena about a book that she published with Oxford University Press in 2022. The book is called Singing the News of Death, Execution Ballads in Europe, 1500 to 1900. Una Michaelvena is honorary, honorary senior lecturer at the Australian National University, a literary and cultural historian of early modern Europe. She's also the author of Scandal and Reputation at the Court of Catherine Domedici, uh, uh, or Medici, I hope I'm not mispronouncing it. She has held positions at the universities of Melbourne, Sydney, Kent, and Queen Mary University of London. Una, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Uh, before we start the interview, can you please briefly introduce yourself and uh, tell us about um, your field of expertise and also how the idea of this book came to you? So I trained as an early modern uh, literary and cultural historian. I looked initially for my doctorate at the uh, satirical verse that attacked the French court in the 16th century. Uh, I had come from a background in literature so that I, I'm could see how important it was to understand the the literary ways in which the court uh, was satirized and attacked. And um, that then when I, that led on to the project on execution ballads, I was, there was a job I was going for and the topic of this postdoc was early modern execution. And I thought I can do something about song because I had realized at the very last minute as I was finishing my PhD, that I had kind of ignored the fact that there were songs everywhere. And I realized that this was a sort of an untapped resource. So I thought I'll look at execution through the ballads that I have started to notice uh, exist around this. And I thought I'll do a multilingual project because I think it's important to do comparative work. And it just sort of grew and grew as I started doing the work. Initially, it was going to be four languages. It ended up being five. It, initially, it was going to be an early modern project. And then I realized that it, it this was a phenomenon that went even right into the 20th century. So I couldn't stop where I normally would have stopped. So it just got bigger and bigger as it went along. <laughs> and the topic is so fascinating. I myself knew nothing about execution ballads. I only read an article some time ago about uh gallo literature in the united states where there were all these sorts of writings confessional writings which were dramatized uh, uh and usually the point of view was the person who's going to who was going to be executed but anyhow, can you define what an execution ballot is and uh, how were they created i mean who were the authors and how common or prevalent they were. Yeah, so they do fall into that kind of gallows literature, especially that idea of the condemned being the the voice that speaks. Execution ballads are songs that tell the news of crime and their punishments, uh, high-profile crimes, because these are punishments that are fatal, you know, that's the death penalty. So that is a limited group of crimes, right? 
Um, they were produced from the beginning of print. We have execution ballads. It's important to understand that in the early modern period, particularly because you have very low literacy rates, that the news is very likely to be sung. It will be put into song form at sung. And that is a great way of disseminating information for a largely illiterate um, populace. People could hear a song, they can remember it because it's very likely set to a, a familiar tune. That uh, technique of contrafactum is something we find all over Europe. Uh, and so it's set to a familiar tune. And so as soon as you have the words, you can sing along. That helps you to memorize the song. And so uh, songs uh, as news media are really common. And crime and punishment is, like today, one of the main categories of, of news always has been. So these are high-profile crimes, and they're and they're usually quite ghastly punishments. Uh, they are very often in the first-person voice of the condemned criminal. They focus on the condemned criminal rather than on, as we might expect today, the victims. We don't hear so much about the victims. It's much more about the spiritual journey that the condemned criminal goes on because central to the message of almost every execution ballad is that you should learn from this lesson. The execution is a moral lesson designed to teach all of us how to avoid sin and avoid crime. And we should see from this terrible example of this person who was just a regular person who fell into sin and crime and ended up doing terrible things and now they're, they're, they're about to die in front of us. Um, we should think, oh my God, I must... I must learn to be a good person, to you know, say my prayers and behave well, and I can avoid this terrible, shameful end. And do we know who the authors were? Were they just random people? Or were there well, the most common author is our our best selling early modern author, anonymous, um, because they're mostly anonymous. Uh, mm -hmm. Much like a lot of literature in the early modern period, the people who are making the money from ballads are the printers. So they uh, are commissioning these ballads, and and we're very sure that the the lots of different kinds of people are writing ballads on a, on a regular basis. We do know some ballad writers, but there's no standard model of what that person looks like. Um, some of them become somewhat of a celebrity, um, and they have all kinds of jobs, from uh, a pub landlord to um, a clergyman to you know, and a nobleman, everything in between, right? So there's no standard ballad composer. Uh, a lot of people are doing it just to um, make a bit of make a bit of cash. It's not a lucrative business because uh, the people who are really making the money are the printers who commission them and then sell them wholesale to uh, ballad vendors who are the street singers who go out on the street. They also live a very sort of hand to mouth existence, um, trying to sell these ballads by performing some of it on the streets and people gather around in a uh, around the singer and buy the sheets or the little pamphlets that they have for sale so they're cheaply printed and they're sold wholesale to uh ballad sellers um who then they they usually cost about a penny so they're very cheap and um and they're they're cheaply printed mm. and uh Earlier, you, you, you mentioned contrafactum. I'm curious to know, what is the tradition of contrafactum? And what, what was the significance of the choice of music in conveying the information through these ballads, information about the nature of crimes or, or the criminal who was uh, executed? 
So uh, contrafactum is a very widespread technique, uh, very old, uh, and it's we find it all over the world. It's, it's very simply setting lyrics to a familiar tune. So the idea is that um, you, you pick a, a melody that people know and you set words to it. The thing is, though, as we all do, we carry associations with certain melodies uh, and that those associations, emotional and cultural associations, feed into the new version. So it is really important which melody the uh, composer can choose. So they could sometimes pick very uh, somber melodies. Uh, a very good example is uh, the one called Fortune by Foe in English, which is by far the best-selling um, melody for songs of disasters and executions and terrible things in early modern Northern Europe. And it's very somber and slow. And that makes sense because this is a very, you know, most execution ballads are um, fairly um, contemplative. They're asking you to think very deeply about how, how life can go wrong and the sins that people commit. On the other hand, uh, if you very, um, you really don't like the person who's being executed, say, for example, they're a heretic or a traitor, you might set that their, your lyrics to a very fun melody where you're laughing at this person because you're so glad that they've been executed. And so we do have one like that um, in English called Row Well You Mariners. And it's a very, very popular song, but it's actually like a country line dance song. So there's actually, we still have the steps to it where you, you know, doxido your partner and you clap hands and you dance around and skip around. And to set as, as a, a ballad composer in the 16th century did, he set the execution ballad of a heretic, a Catholic heretic in England, to that song, to that tune. And therefore, the song becomes this hilariously, you know, mocking, ridicule uh, kind of song about a, a person that everyone is really glad to see the end of. So it very much depends. The contrafactum is a really sophisticated technique that carries on right through well into the 20th century. We still we still do it today, in fact. Um, and so it's it's really quite important that we understand not just the lyrics, but also the melodies which they're set. Uh, uh, another part of the book that I was really interested in was um, was the whole idea of execution being a public spectacle. And an important aspect of that is uh, is is about the idea of creating shame. And you mentioned that these songs or uh, these ballads did play a role in the, in constructing that feeling of shame, which sometimes even had consequences for their relatives uh, of the person who was executed. So, could you please talk about that a little for our listeners? Yeah, for sure, because that's such an important and for me at first very puzzling part of uh, understanding mm -hmm. execution, because. Shame was being constantly mentioned, even by the condemned prisoners. They would say, I'm so worried about the shame my execution will cause. And that didn't make any sense to me because I thought, well, if you're just about to die any minute from now, you'd, you'd be scared. Sure, you'd be scared of the pain. Uh, you'd be scared of dying. But why would you be scared of shame because you're about to be dead? And that's because we tend to think in our modern Western culture of shame as an inherently personal thing that something I do and people will look at me and think badly of me. And what we have to understand about how she works in the early modern period is that it is something that is held by one's family, one's kin network. 
And so it's very much to do with honor, dishonor. And, you know, your family uh, will be dishonored by something that uh, any member of the family does to it. So really, we have to think about when a, a condemned criminal is scared of the shame, it will cause, them, they're, they're worried about the shame, it'll cause their remaining family members. So this is about stigma that will happen to those people. They will be uh, thrown out of the guild. They will be ostracized in public. They will lose jobs because of the way that their um, uh, relative was executed. And that's another really important part of this is that it's very much to do with the particular method of execution um, because each method, and there was a whole range of methods from hanging to beheading to boiling to burying, um, that each one of them had a specific degree of dishonor. And so what you want is that your relative gets executed in the least dishonorable way possible. Um, so it's more than, than just being ashamed of the fact that, say, for example, your relative murdered someone. That doesn't come into it as much. It's much more about the method by which they're executed. And so you get families um, petitioning the authorities to say, you know, not they're not asking for the their relative to be pardoned and, um, you know, to be acquitted of the crime. They say, no, 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 we, we know you're going to execute them, but could you maybe behead them instead of hanging them? Or could you hang them instead of burning them? Because each one of those is a, a you know, they're more or less dishonorable than the, the, than the next. And so when, uh, how this affects execution ballads is that you find the mention of shame, not in the song where they're talking about the crime, um, which is where we would expect it. We say oh, the shameful murder or the shameful action. Instead, we find the mention of shame right at the end of the song when the person is being executed. It, they talk about this this shameful end. I would I will die. Um, it's all about how I'm leaving this world, and a lot of that has to do with the publicity of the execution spectacle. Uh, that the public knowledge of what this person has done and the way in which they were executed is visible for everyone to see. And so the family who's left behind is, um, you know, made to suffer the consequences of that. So all punishment in the early modern period is about publicity. Even if you're not being executed, you're being whipped, for example, um, or branded. It's very much about the publicity, the public knowledge of what you have done must be witnessed by the community. And that's where shame and dishonor come into it. So it's really complex and very, very different to how we conceive of punishment in our modern Western society. So it took me a long time to work all of that out. Uh, but really, uh, the publicity is, is central to understanding how this crime is kind of expiated from the community. You have to be witness to the punishment. And that reminds me of some unfortunate practices even in today's contemporary world where there is public, there is still in some countries, public execution or public um, flagging of people who you know, have committed small crime. That still happens and the whole idea is to, is this idea of shame, to, to make them ashamed yes. of the crime they have committed. 
Yeah, it's it's so there are those places where public execution is still carried on today. Um, it, they would have a very similar understanding to early modern Europeans of mm. how that disorder works and and that public witnessing of the crime. There is also a belief in those places that um, it works as a deterrent that if people witness this mm. terrible thing happening, they won't uh, commit crimes. We've we we know that you know just statistically speaking that isn't true. Uh, if someone is going to murder someone, they're going to murder them no matter what the punishment is. Um, and so deterrent isn't, deterrence isn't really an argument. Um, some people still think it is, but it doesn't hold any weight really. Uh, but it's very much um, about public witnessing and, and the dishonor that goes with that. And and there was this medieval tradition, I guess some criminals were put on a on the back of a horse or a donkey and there was this group of people singing or musicians playing music. Again, it was the whole idea of public shaming them. Yeah, that's also uh, another kind of ritual. Now, I'd be very, um, uh, I'm always very quick to remind people that this is not something we associate or we should not associate with the medieval. This is mm. very much the Renaissance. All of these oh, kind of public punishments are very much, uh, we have this weird cultural idea that the medieval, the Middle Ages was some barbaric time um, full of cruelty. But in fact, that's the Renaissance, where you really get these public spectacles, big scaffolds with thousands of people watching. That's from the sort of 16th century onwards. Um, so, uh, but the 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 thing you're talking about, for example, the public procession that this, that is about shaming someone in public in front of the community, very often they are um, extra legal community rituals. So they're not necessarily decided by a court, although it could be. Um, but the the community very often will take matters into their own hands. It's usually to do with um, sexual uh, conformity. So if somebody is um, per- believed by the community to not be conforming to the norms of uh, marital and sexual behavior, you'll find that they, the community will take action. And there, these kinds of processions are often, they're known by a lot of different names. Sharivari in French, yeah. uh, das Habafeldkrieben uh, in German, um, and in English they're known as rough music or skimmington rides. There's a lot of different terms for them, but very often the the community will gather and make lots of terrible noise with um, kind of homemade instruments, banging pots and pans and waving anything that makes a lot of noise in order to make really discordant music. And that discordant music is supposed to reflect the discord that this these people have brought into the community by not conforming. So um, uh, women dis- that are believed to be schools or believed to be sort of public nuisances are often treated to this kind of um, extra legal punishment. But the shame is very much a part of it, that you are shamed into conforming to the way people expect, which is, you know, heterosexual marriage or people out of roughly the same age, and you produce children from it. Any deviation from that um, is seen as not conforming. So that's when it would happen. Mm-hmm. And, and I also have a question about gender and shame, but I'd rather wait until uh, a few more minutes. I have another question, which which is about the gender of the, crim- the, the criminal, the person who was executed. So before that, I'd like to talk about chapter three, and I really love the title of the chapter, 
fake news, how execution ballots walk the line between truth and fiction. And what I found really fascinating and surprising to me was that there were a lot of supernatural elements in these ballots, but they made them more plausible rather than um, rather than making people kind of question the content or the narrative of these ballots. So question that I have is that why is that why is it that those supernatural elements, first of all, made them plausible and how accurate these ballots were in narrating the details of the crime? Yeah, again, that's another thing that's kind of hard for us to accept. Um, when we see uh, moments in these ballads where something supernatural or magical happens, we immediately assume, oh, well, that means it's not true. But for an early modern audience who believed that God was acting in our everyday lives, constantly sending us signs and portents of his um, of you know his justice or his beliefs, then those supernatural events were interpreted as God telling us what to do. So, for example, the very famous one is, of course, Lady Macbeth, when the blood won't wash out of her hands. Um, that the kind of trope of a murderer being unable to um, get the blood away off their skin is accepted in the early modern period as proof that this is the murderer. And in fact, for centuries, um, the, it's believed that if the murderer was brought into the presence of the corpse, the corpse would automatically, spontaneously start bleeding. And that's a, a process called cruentation. There was a name for it. And so people believed this right into the 19th century, that this was what would happen. Um, so those kinds of things that we now discount as, you know, magical or superstitious, for early modern people, they were evidence of God working in the world. And so they actually gave um, more, um, it, they made the ballots more trustworthy because that there it is, That's that's the proof. So we have to really sort of enter into the mind of an early modern person who was hearing this song and think, okay, actually, the mention of werewolves for us makes us laugh, but actually for them, people who really believe that werewolves were a thing, that's that's something to be scared about. You know, that's real. Um, you still have wolves in the early, you know, in the 16th century Europe, uh, wolves in the forests. Uh, so werewolves were a much more believable kind of um, entity. Uh, so the, 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 the other thing that makes it difficult as well, though, by contrast, is the fact that ballad singers are notoriously um, reputed in the early modern period as being not trustworthy. They're there to sell you um, their songs. And they'll, they love the dramatic, right? So many of these songs are very sensationalist in their language because you're trying to sell it on the street along with a bunch of other people who are trying to sell their stuff. So you have to make it a song that's going to be, that's going to capture the public's imagination and make them stop while they're shopping in the marketplace and listen to the singer. And so they're full of these kind of fantastical details at times, which is a, a way of getting the, the people to, to listen. And so because of that, people are just as, you know, I think we have just as many gullible people and skeptical people in our society today as we did then. And so there are people who think, yeah, that, that ballad singer is not to be trusted. 
And it's so bad that, in fact, in Britain, uh, ballad singers are so reputed to be involved in um, pickpocketing that their testimony in court is immediately discredited. If somebody gets up and identifies as a ballad singer, they say, oh, well, then they're not to be trusted because they're so um, associated with criminality. Because as you can imagine, you've got a group of people standing around listening in a very distracted way to a ballad singer. Well, that's a perfect time for someone to come along and cut your purse off and steal your money. And so that does happen a lot with ballad singers. And so they, they are a group of people who are already associated uh, uh, with a lack of trust and a lack of honesty. And so when they then stick their thongs, there is that kind of sense of disbelief going on at the same time. So it's a very, very difficult question to answer. How true were they? I would say they're just as true as any other account. Um, they the, the fact that they are in song form doesn't make them any less reliable than any other account of an event. Mm-hmm. And it's a tough it's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, what was the role of uh, Protestant Reformation in, in, in let's say, increasing the popularity of these songs or their frequency, and also the the, the infamous witch hunts? Okay, so there's a lot going on there. I mean, um, one of the things that the Protestant Reformation does, in fact, one of the way the reasons the Reformation happens in the way it does, and um, particularly the Lutheran. Um, Reformation is because Martin Luther understood the power of song. And so what he did was uh, he encouraged followers to sing hymns, simple folk hymns called chorales uh, in church in their own language. Now, one of the, a big thing about the Protestant Reformation is, of course, the translation of the Bible and other sacred texts into the vernacular language of the local people so that we can all read the Bible ourselves rather than relying on a priest to do it for us. And so that was um, something that Luther really championed. So he took melody that people already knew, so he's using contrafactum, and he gets these hymns written that are very simple, and there's hundreds and hundreds of them, and people love it. And so you get people singing in church, something that we probably take for granted nowadays, but that was a that was a really novel thing. Um, even the Catholics are doing it. The Catholics are freaking out about it because you know uh, they're not supposed to be singing um, in their own language in church. That's for the choir and the priest to sing in Latin. So you've got this huge um, kind of um, phenomenon of people singing songs in the vernacular uh, that are used contrafactum. The other thing, of course, that the the Reformation does is it introduces. Uh, extraordinary upheaval. I mean, it's. I would. I would argue that the the Reformation is the single most important event of the the last millennium, uh, in terms of the upheaval it caused for Europe. People then are. You know, you've got wars uh, going on all over the place. Um, you've got the Thirty Years' War, which breaks out in the early 17th century, which really. Um, it's like a world war to Europeans who don't understand much about the rest of the world. Everyone is fighting. There's famine and destruction. And so people look for scapegoats, someone to blame for this. And that's, it, it, I, for me, there's no accident that the, the, the huge witch panics that start particularly in the German lands and that spread out across Europe are, for me, absolutely linked to the 
the Reformation and the upheaval that it caused. So we get um, uh, witch hunting going on uh, in different ways, in different places. It's very important to understand that um, in the German lands, men, women, and children are being, um, you know, denounced en masse and huge executions, huge bonfires that people are going on. Um, you get a different model in, in uh, Britain, for example, where you get to, you tend to get a focus on women and particularly older women. But um, the the same thing is going on. There, there are ballads being produced about um, about which uh, executions. Uh, the difference, of course, is that the German ones are just in the town of Berberg. There were you know hundreds of people executed, and it was so awful, and they just had to kind of reel off a whole list of the terrible things that happened. Um, whereas the the ones in the English language tend to be about very specific, identifiable women. Um, but uh, it's certainly, it's it's as much of a crime as murder or anything else. And so it features very prominently for a certain time period. Um, obviously, we don't get them anymore in the 19th century. We don't get any more execution ballots of witches. <laughs> and um, the question that I wanted to ask earlier, which was about the, uh, the shame and gender. So... What elements of crime influenced the way the stories or the content, the ballads were exaggerated in a way? Did it have anything to do with the gender of the criminal or the gravity of the crime? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, just like today, crimes by women are very much overrepresented in execution ballads. When we look at the statistics of how many women are actually committing crimes, particularly violent crimes, um, we we can very quickly see that they they are far more represented in in execution ballads than they should be. There is, in fact, we can date a sort of a, a fashion, in fact, in the early 17th century for stories about wives murdering their husbands uh, in in England, and you get this kind of flurry of ballads about this, and and you know wives are. Um, all these become these ballads become a kind of message to all wives to learn from this horrible example of these terrible women. You know, um, when in fact we can see quite clearly that it's far more likely that a husband will kill his wife than the other way around at the time. Uh, so, what's interesting about the way the law works in the early modern period is that uh, a man is actually much more likely to get off on a, an accusation of murder by claiming it was in the heat of the moment, it was in a fight, I was drunk, we had a fight, and therefore it becomes manslaughter. But women couldn't generally um, uh, ask for manslaughter to, you know, to have their conviction reduced to manslaughter because they didn't go to taverns, they didn't uh, carry tools um, that they could, you know, accidentally kind of uh, kill their friend with. Instead, the women will nearly always uh, be convicted because even if the, the the judges are aware that there's a history of domestic violence and that this woman is potentially um, defending herself from a violent husband, that won't change anything. She's murdered her husband, and so therefore, um, the you know she will she'll burn for it. Um, the the difference with um, what we have in in uh, in Britain and in, in France is a, something called petty treason, which is when a an social inferior 
murders their social superior. So when a servant murders their master or mistress, or when a, a wife murders her husband, uh, he's thought of as her lord. And therefore, it's like a small kind of treason. It's like us murdering the king, our you know, lord and master. Uh, a wife murdering her husband is like little treason. So petty, petty treason. It's called petty treason in England. And therefore, she will burn for it. Anyone who does commits petty treason is burned. Uh, the things to, to understand about the, you know, blatant injustice of all of this is that execution ballots always, always are unquestioning of the justice. The, the, the person who is condemned is always guilty. The justice is unquestioned. They go to their uh, execution uh, remorseful, repentant, um, meek. They don't fight against it. They don't. There's no uh, execution ballot that mentions a botched execution or somebody struggling on the scaffold. Nothing like that, because these ballots always present an image of justice as being executed faultlessly, and that's really important to understand. So you can introduce any uh, any kind of even doubt that perhaps maybe this person wasn't quite fully guilty. You know, that never ever happens. Uh, and and so these are they exist to teach a moral lesson, and so any doubt would dilute that uh, dilute that lesson. So there, that's really important to understand about them. And uh, so if they they never question the idea of justice, but were they the content of this bias? Were they ever sympathetic towards the uh, criminals or the person people were going to be hanged, or they were simply critical of them? It's um. <laughs> It's an interesting. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily go far to say sympathy, except that we are supposed to be compassionate. Mm. That's the emotion that most execution ballads are encouraging in their listeners. And compassion is a real sense of, uh, you know, empathy that you yourself, the listener, well, you're also a sinner, and therefore, if you, you know, find yourself you know, moving away from God, you could yourself be open to temptation by the devil, just like this person was. And so none of us should be uh, too confident that we'll this will never happen to us. And that's the message that you're always getting. And so the remorse and repentance that the condemned criminal sings of as they sing to this sort of imagined spectator who's at the execution is uh, supposed to encourage in us um, a sense that you know I am, I've done the wrong thing, uh, or I could do the wrong thing, and I should never get too cocky or arrogant about my perfection because this is something that could happen to me at any moment. The other question that I have is about the um, the execution of the nobility or political crimes, and that's something you discuss in the book. How were those uh, executions treated in these uh, songs, and if and if there was a monarch who was being executed, were there any, let's say, nationalistic or patriotic uh, feelings or sentiments reflected in the songs? Yeah, that's a really good question because uh, we have to understand that the nobility are thought of as completely different to regular humans, right? So they get a different kind of execution for a start. They will always be beheaded unless they've done something just unthinkable, but they are always beheaded, which is the most, or I should say, the least dishonorable method. Um, and across 
um, all of Europe, they will be uh, beheaded with a sword, which is itself um, kind of uh, associated with chivalry. You know, uh, it's only in Britain that no, the nobility is executed with an axe. Uh, everywhere else, it's a sword. So the the ballads about nobility are that are that get executed are really interesting because they're nearly always executed for political reasons, right? You know, they're treason or uh, a sense that they've uh, angered the monarch, right? If you think of Sir Walter Raleigh or the Earl of Essex and people like that. Um, so the thing is, these are heroes, particularly someone like the Earl of Essex, uh, someone that the people adore because he's this great military hero. And then the next thing you know, he's being executed. Now, you cannot question the monarch's decision. That's treason in itself, right? So how do you write a ballad that is both, yes, it's good that he's being executed, but oh gosh, we really miss him. I mean, that becomes a very difficult thing to do, but yet ballad composers do it. They walk this very fine line between he's a wonderful, he was a wonderful hero, but he deserved to die. Uh, so they're very different to other kinds of um, ballads. They're very sympathetic. So execution ballads about the nobility are almost without um, exception sympathetic to the noble person. So the ones you get in uh, Italian, for example, they're always, you know, I've, I've got ones, for example, it's a, it's a good example where we're talking about the difference with gender. I've got some Italian ones where a noble woman has murdered her husband, but because she is singing the ballad herself, she becomes this incredibly sympathetic character who's very beautiful. And she only, she doesn't say anything explicitly about the murder or her own execution. It's all just um, kind of poetic tropes about, uh, you know, white skin and red blood, and it's very noble and romantic. Um, so there's an absolutely completely different treatment of nobility in execution ballads for sure. You asked about kings and queens, and of course we have quite a few of those being executed. Mm. Um, the very obvious ones are Charles I of England and Louis XVI of France, along with his wife, Marie Antoinette. That's a really interesting example. Charles I, um, I mean, everyone in Europe is appalled that the English are executing a king. They can't believe it. And so kind of unsurprisingly, the, the, um, the ballads in all the other languages uh, besides English, are quite sympathetic to him and to his his now widow, uh, Henrietta, Henrietta Maria. And he's pictured as this loving king and they've taken him away from his wife and children. You, you would expect, however, though, that in England, where it is illegal to question the regicide, you know, they, they make it an illegal thing to do to write songs in support of the, the now um, murdered king. There are. There are lots of ballads, in fact that say, what what happened? This should never have happened. This was the worst thing in the world. We should never have murdered our king. So there's actually, that really surprised me when I discovered how many ballads were in existence that were, took a very strong royalist bent. Um, the other then example is uh, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. Now, um, they are all in favor of the executions of, or you know, I shouldn't say they all are, most are in favor of the executions of these two monarchs. However, the difference between the ones about Louis and the ones about Marie Antoinette, he is pictured as a 
generally a foolish uh, childlike king who was sort of duped into doing these bad things. Um, and there's actually, there, there's some songs where that really um, are very um, mournful at the loss of their their good father. You know, there's one where, you know, his, he, he sings to his children and his children sing to him. And that's quite a sympathetic depiction. There are no songs whatsoever that are in um, take that are sympathetic to Marie Antoinette. She is described as a tigress, a devil, um, the evil incarnate. Uh, she they celebrate her death with a viciousness and a vitriolic kind of content that is breathtaking. Um, the difference between them, the, the the depiction of these two monarchs in song, is it, it really is outrageous. Uh, the misogyny that feeds the songs about uh, executed queens is so obvious. Uh, even though, you know, the Louis and Marie Antoinette were executed only a few months apart, um, it's like it's like a t- two different events altogether. It's it's just, it, it's, it's really extraordinary how much uh, misogynist vitriol is directed at the queen as opposed to her husband. Um what about the role of these songs in uh, uh, romanticizing the execution of an outlaw? We know we have, I think in the romantic literature, we also had this idea of romanticizing an outlaw or a highwayman. And it kind of lingers even in 20th century, especially in American culture, maybe or in movies, you have uh, these ballads or songs about uh, about some criminals, or not necessarily criminals, people who... Uh, out of poverty, you know, committed some crimes, but also gave to the poor. So, so what was the role of these songs in romanticizing the idea of a villain or a or an outlaw? Yeah, uh, there's a whole, it's all kind of subgenre of balladry, is I love that. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of the oldest songs we have in English, for example, are about Robin Hood. Yeah. And they keep up that idea that he stole from the rich and gave to the poor. Now, that never, ever happened. No outlaw ever did that. Um, and in fact, you're right. There are still, in fact, narco uh, corrida songs about um, in uh, Mexico and in Central America about um, drug barons um, that praise them as these wonderful guys. So it is definitely the longest and most enduring uh, tradition within balladry, I'd say. But what I discovered as I looked at ballads across time, there was a, a, a model of two very distinct models of uh ballads about outlaws the there was what i call the romantic and then the realistic the romantic ones are the ones that in fact we're often still singing today they are the kinds about you know the robin hood style um and in every language it seems that you have these songs where this kind of um this bloke who's who's kind of charming um who doesn't do anything really terribly bad and in those songs, his execution is only very kind of obliquely referred to. We don't really um, spend much time on the realistic depiction of an execution. What's interesting is that um, as I really amassed a kind of large corpus of ballads, you got to see that certain melodies were used again and again for execution ballads. The romantic ones do not use traditional execution melodies. And that was another big kind of sign to me that I was looking at something like a very different thing altogether. By contrast, 
the um, uh, the realistic model, uh, they were always composed directly upon the execution, so I could date the printing to very close to the time of the actual execution. They were very realistic in terms of the depiction of the execution itself. The outlaw was uh, portrayed as an evil villain who terrorized the countryside and for whom there was no sympathy whatsoever. And they were set to traditional execution ballad melodies. And so for me, this sort of nostalgic romantic model differs so extraordinarily from this other realistic model. Um, to me, they are completely different things. It, but interestingly, it is the, the nostalgic ones that we are still singing that have kind of entered folk song or nursery rhyme territory uh, and are still sung today. And they also continue, this this whole tradition also continued in 20th century, but of course it started to decline. A part of the reason is that we had fewer public executions. But in general, what, what happened to these ballads? And do you personally know of any region in Europe or any other parts of the world where this tradition is still is still alive? So uh, when I actually sort of ran the statistics on how many ballads existed at certain periods, I, I could I noticed in almost every language a very sharp drop off at a certain time. And I traced that to the exact moment when public executions stopped happening and executions were instead moved inside the prison walls. So executions continue, um, but the public doesn't get to gather en masse in their thousands to witness these. And it, precisely at that moment, you see a sharp drop off in the numbers of ballads being composed about them, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. There's some direct correlation between the idea that this is a public event and the, the need to write a song about it. Uh, the only ones that remain after that period tend to be um, for, for crimes that are really nefarious you know like for example a man doesn't just cut up his, he doesn't just murder his wife he cuts her up into a bunch of pieces or something or he murders a tiny child so um uh, that's a, we, we definitely see a, a very sharp drop off in execution ballots one of the interesting things that we see though is in britain for example uh we start to instead of uh executing criminals we start to transport them to Australia mostly and you start to see this rise in what are called transportation ballots and they become really really popular uh, what's interesting is that in Britain um, the printing community is based in a certain area of London known as Seven Dials and there's a huge Irish population there they're very involved in the composing and the printing and the selling of ballots uh, and so there's lots of songs about the Irish in London during this period. The Irish are very overrepresented in terms of the population who is transported to Australia. And so this becomes a really uh, popular sort of new genre or new topic for ballads. And so you could say that the punishment ballad continues, but in a different form because we're not publicly executing people anymore, but we are still transporting them. So lots of Irish folk songs that are still popular today talk about places like Botany Bay and Van Diemen's Land, which were the big penal colonies in the very early days of Australia. Uh, so I would say that that, that kind of it continues in that sense. Um, and they, those are seen as actually kind of nostalgic ballads now for Australians, funnily enough. <laughs> and um, before we end this conversation, I always ask people that, that I interview if 
if they have any other projects they're currently working on, any books that we might expect sometime soon? Yeah, I'm thrilled. I've actually just been awarded a major fellowship wow. by the Australian Research Council to study ballads as news media in Europe and Australia. And uh, this is going to take a very similar model to this project that I've mm. just completed, uh, but expand it to uh, news ballads on all kinds of news topics. So I can look at politics and political satire, uh, military conflicts, and natural disasters and wonders, as well as crime and punishment. And um, I'm super excited. I'm just about to start that really major project. And I'm working currently on a project on disaster ballads. So shipwrecks, fires, floods, earthquakes, you name it. Um, there were songs about it from, <laughs> from, the, from the dawn of print onwards. Yeah, and I guess they're also very common in Australia with bushfires uh, as well. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, there are, for example, um, a load of songs about 9-11. Uh, there's an entire Wikipedia page just on songs that people wrote after 9-11. So while we don't use song as a primary medium of communicating news today, uh, we still use it as a way of expressing emotion about terrible events uh, whatever they may be, mining disasters or shipwrecks or um, terrorist attacks. Fascinating. Well, I hope to be able to talk to you about your new book, uh, but I guess it might be a couple of years before it's published. <laughs> It'll take me some time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about your fascinating book. And I strongly urge our listeners to read the book. It's it's uh, like that's the topic that I didn't really think would interest me, but when I started browsing through the book, I just started reading and it was fascinating. And you have included a lot of these ballads in your book as well. Yes, there's some musical scores. We bought, we have the tunes for a lot of them still. So, mm. uh, and I'd also have recordings on my website, which is executionballads.com. Wow, great. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Morteva. It's a pleasure. <laughs>